0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Visit agorapodcastnetwork.com to hear more wonderful shows from many talented colleagues. Eri, Nini, Enchen, greetings to you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is episode 134b, the Burials of Akhenaten. Today I want to cover some other aspects of the king's royal tomb, things I did not get to discuss in the last episode. Also, I want to tackle the question of KV55, that mysterious grave in the Valley of the Kings that might Hold the Mummy of Akhenaten. KV55 and Akhenaten have a complicated relationship, and we should dig into it a little bit deeper. So, this episode is more supplementary, an add-on to episode 134. If you are just here for the main story, feel free to skip it. But, if you want some more nitty-gritty details about Arkanaten, stick around. I think this material is fascinating, and I hope you will agree. Now then, on with the show. In his 17th regnal year, sometime around 1346 BCE, Akhenaten, the king of southern and northern Egypt, died. He was probably in his early to mid-thirties, as far as the historical evidence is concerned. He died of natural causes, as far as we can tell, and when he passed, his heirs prepared the body for its burial. Soon, the king's mummy travelled east of Akhet Aten, the royal city, and in a secluded tomb, hidden among the cliffs of an old river valley, Akhenaten went to his rest. The tomb of Akhenaten at Amana was discovered in the late 1800s, it was first found by the locals who lived in this area. They uncovered the tomb, and westerners became aware of it, because small items of jewellery appeared on the antiquities market. Soon after, scholars like Flinders Petrie began to investigate this area and the monument. A couple of different expeditions and excavations followed. Scholars would trek out to the royal tomb to examine the monument and sift through some of the debris. Studies of the royal tomb were a bit haphazard in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Then, in the 1970s, a new team came here and conducted a thorough scientific excavation. This new team surveyed the tomb, measuring every nook and cranny, they cleared the debris right down to the bedrock of the floor. They patched up damage, repairing cracks in the walls and installing electric lights. And they catalogued hundreds of objects, fragments of the ancient burial that survived among the wreckage. This modern team, led by Professor Geoffrey Martin of the University College London, did an excellent job, The surveys and maps drawn by Mark Lehner, who now works at Giza, documented Akhenaten's tomb in wonderful detail. Most of this episode comes from their reports, the material they published in the 1970s and 80s. Thanks to Martin and every member of his team, we have a wonderful look at the burials that took place in Akhenaten's tomb. In episode 134, I described the sarcophagus and shabti figurines that belong to this king. Akhenaten's burial container was a rectangular box made of granite. It bore emblems of the Aten, and the figure of Nefertiti appeared at each corner, wrapping her arms around the edges of the box and enfolding the king in her embrace. This symbol, the queen, as a goddess at each corner, was a new feature for royal sarcophagi, one that actually survived into later generations. Kings like Tutankhamun and Horemheb used the same motif, and their sarcophagi show winged goddesses protecting the royal body. It is a beautiful feature of their tombs, and this motif comes from Akhenaten. Fun fact for the day. One object I did not discuss is the remains of Akhenaten's canopic chest. The canopic chest is a box made of stone, and it originally held the jars that contained Akhenaten's organs. The king's canopic jars protecting his vitals are mostly lost, but the chest that once contained them survives. It is fragmented, badly destroyed, but in the 1930s, A scholar reconstructed the chest from its remaining pieces. Thanks to that work, we can get a glimpse at the resting place of Akhenaten's viscera. The canopic chest of Akhenaten was made from a single block of alabaster, a type of calcite or travertine. It is a creamy white, quite soft and easy to carve. From this stone, the ancient artisans made a beautiful box. The chest is a rough square, and its lid is shaped like the roof of a shrine. At each corner, we see four falcons, royal birds wearing sun discs on their heads. The falcons stretch their wings left and right, so that they wrap around the outsides of the box, and overlap with one another. These falcons are symbols of Horus, and so the god protects Akhenaten's viscera, ensuring that his organs and life essence endure it. In a sense, these Horus falcons are a parallel to the figures of Nefertiti, who protected the sarcophagus. With the queen on his burial container, and Horus on the canopic chest, Akhenaten really doubled down on the divine protections for his immortal corpse. Apparently, he really wanted to live forever. The canopic chest would originally have held four canopic jars, These jars are mostly lost, but we do have the lid of one of them. The lids of Akhenaten's canopic jars took the form of busts, the head and shoulders of the king. Today, we just have the shoulders and part of the neck, but looking at this lid, we do get a sense of what the king originally used for his organs. Once again, the lid bears emblems of Horus, a royal falcon appears on each of the king's shoulders. These falcons have sun discs atop their heads, and their wings stretch out to meet in the middle of the king's front and his back. Royal cartouches identify the king and praise the sun god Aten. So the canopic lids are covered in the sort of symbols that Akhenaten really liked, the ones he emphasised in his religious views. Again, Akhenaten's canopic jars seem to emphasise the idea of eternity, divine protection for the king's body, a way that he could live forever. Beyond the burial equipment, the sarcophagus and the canopic chest, Akhenaten also went to his rest with a variety of treasures. Originally, the king's burial chamber would have housed a huge assortment of goods, Items for use, for worship, and for activities in the next world. Most of these are lost, removed, or destroyed by later generations, so we do not know the full extent of Akhenaten's burial goods. But Geoffrey Martin and his team recovered many fragments, giving us a glimpse at the items. Let's start with the jewellery. Akhenaten's tomb turned up many traces of jewellery. These ranged from beautiful necklaces, to earrings or ear plugs, and a huge variety of rings. Akhenaten's tomb had a vast number of rings, made in different materials and bearing wonderful motifs. Among others, we have a ring in the shape of a frog, sitting on a flat background. Another one shows a human, dancing while playing a tambourine. Some rings bear cartouches, royal names, that belong to earlier kings. One of these cartouches identifies the name of Thutmose III, Ra, so it might be an heirloom, an antique, passed down over the generations. Why it went into Akhenaten's tomb, I do not know, but it is cool. Other rings show divine symbols, like the Wadjet Eye, or Eye of Horus. The wadjet is a famous symbol, an elongated eye with a curling branch beneath. It is a symbol of protection, and I use it as the logo for this podcast, to protect the show from the horrors of the internet. Finally, we have a ring that shows the god Bess, protector of the household and of children. Bess appears as a forward-facing figure, with his legs bent outwards and a large penis hanging between. His head is abstract, more like a large headdress, fanning out to either side. To the left and right, Bess is flanked by symbols of life, unks. It is an intriguing little ring, and it might seem surprising that Akhenaten, the heretic, quote-unquote, has a symbol of Bess among his treasures. Why would this king have an emblem of such a god? Well, Perhaps the ring did not belong to Akhenaten, maybe somebody donated it as part of their contribution to his burial, or perhaps it came later, a lost trinket among the wreckage. We cannot be sure, but as we will see in an upcoming episode, the god Bess was popular throughout Akhenaten's reign, and symbols of the deity show up in the city of Arket Aten, Amana. Apparently, people quite liked him, regardless of the king's beliefs. So Bess turns up in the tomb on a ring. It is a curious little inclusion, one that I quite like. You can see a photo of this ring, and others that I've mentioned, on the podcast website. Beyond the rings, Akhenaten's tomb contained other items. Golden necklaces made of beads turned up, and one of these necklaces is quite intriguing. A set of pendants from an ancient collar seem to be copies of a piece found in KV55, the mysterious tomb in the Valley of the Kings, associated with Akhenaten's reign. Both of these pieces are nearly identical, and what is really fascinating is that they seem to be foreign. The golden pendants, which you can see on the website, are nearly identical to a set found on the island of Cyprus. A tomb at Encomi in the eastern Mediterranean, contained golden necklace beads that are exactly the same as these, which suggests that Akhenaten's court received jewellery from the artists of Cyprus. Apparently, these exotic goods were valuable enough to go into royal burials. A cool little treasure, pictures on the podcast website. Finally, we have some miscellaneous objects that turned up in the tomb, Things that are interesting, but not particularly significant. I will run through them quickly, because I like cataloguing these sort of items. Akhenaten's burial had a blue faience throwing stick. Like a boomerang, this stick was designed for catching birds, striking them sharply so that the hunter could collect them. In this case, Akhenaten's throwing stick is a model, a pretend version of the real thing. In the next world, of course, the model stick would become real, and Akhenaten could use it to hunt birds if he wished. It is a lovely piece, a kind of blue-green, decorated with lotus flowers and the king's cartouche. A wadjet eye appears on each side of the stick. Maybe those would help the king spot his prey, or help the stick see its target as it flew through the air. Either way, it is a well-made piece quite lovely indeed. The royal tomb also held many, many vases. Jugs, vessels, and bottles made in different types of stone filled the burial halls. Ideally, these would have contained wine, oil, honey, and food for the king to use in the afterlife. Today, the vases are mostly fragments, smashed to pieces in antiquity but we can imagine a huge variety of jugs all over the place containing vital goods. Like many tombs of the late 18th dynasty, Akhenaten's burial had items made of glass. Glass Glassmaking had come to Egypt approximately 100 years before, around 1450 BCE. Back then, in the days of Thutmose III and Amunhotep II, glassmakers had started to appear in Egyptian towns. They crushed stones and fired them in furnaces, producing a thin, sparkling material that they moulded into shapes. The most common items of glass were beads, and these turn up in Akhenaten's tomb. But the burial also had inlays for decoration, rods to make more glass later, and various small items that nowadays are just fragments. Egyptian glassmaking is a fascinating industry, one that I hope to describe more in the future. Finally, there were various items of art. Martin's team exploring the tomb found fragments of a statue depicting Akhenaten. It was small and broken, only the torso survives. But it showed the king standing proud, arms crossed over his chest, holding the crook and the flail. This image, the king with his symbols of power, is a classic one for Akhenaten. He used it at Karnak on his colossal statues, and he appears in artistic scenes holding this pose. The crossed arms with crook and flail might be references to the power of Osiris, the eternal ruler who had authority over agriculture, fertility, and life in the Nile Valley. We cannot be sure, but Akhenaten did use this Osiris pose a lot, and it may reflect some aspect of his beliefs. Beyond the statue, the other significant piece of art is a carved relief. This is a famous scene, showing Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and two of their daughters beneath the rays of Aten. The royal couple stand tall, making offerings to the sun, while the princesses shake the sistra, or rattles, to catch the god's attention. This image is one of the most recognisable scenes of the time. It shows up in books and catalogues on a regular basis. As far as we can tell, this image comes from the royal tomb. Once again, you can see all of these items on the podcast website. So, the burial goods of Akhenaten have a wonderful assortment of items, Even if they're damaged and broken today, we can still get a sense of the splendour this king once used. Akhenaten was not an austere individual. He enjoyed wealth, he enjoyed life, and he enjoyed a little bit of decadence. His tomb seems to have had plenty of items to make his afterlife comfortable, and to give him wealth in the next world. Looking at these little fragments, we can get a sense of the ancient pharaoh's burial. Of course, the royal tomb at Arket Aten, Amarna, was Akhenaten's initial resting place. But we cannot be sure if the king remained there, or if his body later moved somewhere else. There is a strong chance that the king later wound up in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings. This tomb, KV55, is a subject of endless controversy, but it is important to discuss it with relation to Akhenaten. In chapter 2, we're going to examine KV55, and what it says about Akhenaten. Is the mummy actually the king, or is it someone else? These questions, and many more, after the break. See you in a moment.
0: at LuckyLandslots.com Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18+. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Chapter 2 In episode 128, I described the discovery and opening of a tomb called KV-55. Located in the Valley of the Kings, KV, this tomb housed the remains of someone who died in the Amarna period. The tomb was partly used for Queen T, Akhenaten's mother, but it also held a second burial, an individual whose identity remains mysterious. To save a long recap, the mummy of KV55 could be Akhenaten, or it could be someone else related to him. The other big candidate is Smenk Ray the mysterious individual who shows up for a couple years late in Akhenaten's reign. Smenkare, whoever they were, ruled for a brief period around this time. They married the king's daughter, Merit Aten, and they might have ruled alongside Akhenaten, or succeeded him on the throne. It is all very unclear. In my reconstruction, I have treated Smenkh Kare as a co-regent for Akhenaten, someone who ruled alongside the pharaoh as a second royal figure. That reconstruction is not perfect, there are many gaps in the historical record, but it is the best I have, in 2020. Anyway, the mummy in KV55 might be Smenkh Kare, but it might be Akhenaten. It is hard to tell. You see, the tomb itself was terribly damaged when it first came to light. Part of the roof had collapsed, smashing the coffin and the mummy it contained. Water had also seeped into the hall, degrading the burial equipment and making the mummy terribly fragile. Unfortunately, the excavators caused further damage when they examined the body. While KV-55 originally had a reasonably intact mummy, today only bones remain. Those bones are hotly contested. There is really one big question here. Is the KV55 mummy Akhenaten? Well, maybe. A couple of factors suggest that might be the case. Firstly, the KV55 coffin bears titles and epithets that usually apply to Akhenaten alone. Phrases like m haweth or Great in His Lifetime, appear on the surface of the coffin. And as far as we know, that title is unique to Akhenaten. So at the very least, Akhenaten planned to use this coffin at some point. Perhaps he was ill and commissioned the burial container as a quick fix. Or perhaps the title is not as unique as we think. Either way, the coffin might have belonged to Akhenaten, we cannot deny that. Secondly, the Canopic Jars in KV55 might have been used for this king. This is an argument put forth by Mark Gabald, who suggests the Canopic Jars eventually belonged to, Akhenaten and no other, end quote. What Gabald means is that, originally, the Jars belonged to Kia, Akhenaten's second wife and a member of the royal household. Later, though, Kia's names were removed and replaced by royal cartouches, possibly those of Akhenaten. For Gabald, the jars probably bore his names, and thus belonged to this king. I am hesitant on this idea. For one thing, we know that Akhenaten had canopic jars, and they went into his tomb at Arket Aten. Parts of those canopic jars survive, namely the lids. So we do know that Akhenaten had his own vessels. Which begs the question, why would someone borrow other jars when the king already had them? Something does not add up there, in my opinion. Finally, the third reason why KV55 might be Akhenaten is that, after the tomb was sealed, a later generation found it. And apparently, those people thought it was Akhenaten. At some point, robbers or vandals entered the tiny sepulchre of KV-55, and when they saw the burial goods, they decided to desecrate it, quite viciously. They attacked the coffin, chiseling the name out of their cartouches. They attacked the face, and tore a huge chunk of the golden mask away. Only the eyes and part of the forehead remain on the coffin, giving KV-55 a ghostly, dark visage. Whoever attacked this tomb clearly thought that it was Akhenaten, which suggests that the burial goods identified the mummy as this king. On that basis, maybe it was the heretic, removed from his tomb and placed in a crypt in the Valley of the Kings. If that is the case, then the KV55 mummy should give us insights into this ruler. There is one big problem with identifying this body as Akhenaten. As far as forensic studies indicate, the mummy is probably about 20 years old, maybe 25 at most. Now, there is a lot of debate around that, and different examinations reach different conclusions. I went through this material in some depth in episode 128, but long story short, although a recent study proclaimed that the mummy was 35, that examination was rife with problems. The authors of the paper, Zahi Hawass and a large team, did not provide any evidence or data to back up their 35-years-old claim. This was an enormous problem, because researchers could not tell if Hawass' team had reached that conclusion legitimately, or if that was the answer they wanted. I am not suggesting anyone lied or that there was any corruption, merely that if you are looking for a particular interpretation sometimes you might ignore evidence to the contrary. The problem with this study was that they did not provide the data supporting their conclusion, which made this discussion effectively useless for historians trying to understand it. If the mummy is in its mid-thirties, and you can prove that with scientific data from analysis machines, we need to see that data in order to confirm it. Unfortunately, the gaps in this study mean that we cannot use it with much confidence. So, the 2010 DNA analysis, at least when it comes to Akhenaten, has made relatively little impact in the Egyptological community. That being said, some scholars have accepted the 2010 study and used it as the basis of their histories. If they believe that KV55 is Akhenaten, then that can form the core of interpretations and theories about who this man was. That can have a big impact, and it is worth paying attention to how critically or how closely an author discusses that material. Without the raw data to study, the age of the mummy remains a totally open question which means that the mummy could be as young as 20 years old. How does that match up with Akhenaten? Historically speaking, it is unlikely that Akhenaten was a child when he came to power. The king was active, even radical, from the very beginning of his reign, and he seems to have instituted many changes in a short amount of time. It is hard to imagine a child having the personal will or the political strength to make those kinds of changes. Even a pharaoh was not all powerful. Their relationships with the courtiers and instruments of government were negotiable, and a ruler could be limited by the people around him. So, unless we are missing a huge amount of information, the idea that Akhenaten was a child who totally upended many institutions is difficult to believe. So the age of the mummy is a serious challenge. For the sake of argument, let's briefly assume that it is the king. What does the skeleton actually tell us? If the KV-55 mummy is Akhenaten, then the king was a diminutive, slender figure. He may have experienced some kind of delayed growth, something that would make his mummy appear younger than he actually was. Alternatively, perhaps the forensic data is wrong or misunderstood. Or maybe Akhenaten suffered from an illness, something that delayed his physical development and made his skeleton appear younger. All kinds of theories have come forth on this topic, but none of them seem to match the historical record or the skeleton itself. So we are still at a loss. Perhaps the king's body was strange maybe the data is wrong. Either way, it does make KV55 hard to identify. One thing we do know is that the burial equipment, the coffin and canopic jars, did not originally belong to Akhenaten. So if this is the king, then somebody took him out of his original tomb, changed his burial equipment, and reburied him in a new monument. That may sound strange, but believe it or not, we actually do have a precedent for that kind of scenario. The idea of removing a king from his tomb, changing his coffin, and burying him in a new place, has happened before in Egyptian history. Back in the days of King Hatshepsut and Thutmose III, there was a little bit of back and forth around the mummy of King Thutmose I. Thutmose I was the father of Hatshepsut and the grandfather of Thutmose III, and he was their most illustrious predecessor, roughly speaking. When Hatshepsut took power as a kind of king, she removed her father Thutmose I from his original burial chamber, and placed him in her tomb. She gave her father a new sarcophagus, and placed her within the sanctuary that she was constructing in the Valley of the Kings. In this sense, Hatshepsut kind of reburied her father symbolically. A couple of decades later, King Thutmose III did the same thing again. After Hatshepsut was dead, Thutmose III went into her tomb, removed the mummy of his grandfather, Thutmose I, and then took it to another burial place. This was the second time that that mummy had moved, and again, Thutmose III gave his grandfather new burial equipment when he placed him in a new chamber. So the idea of removing a king from one tomb, giving them new equipment, and placing them in a new tomb, does have precedent in Egyptian royal history. In that sense, it is quite possible that King Tutankhamun removed Akhenaten from his original tomb, brought him to the Valley of the Kings, and placed him in a new sepulchre. When he did this, Tutankhamun might have given Akhenaten new burial equipment, repurposed from other individuals. The reasons for doing this would be political and religious. When a new king came to the throne, they were obligated to bury their predecessor. Every ruler was the incarnation of Horus, and every dead ruler was the incarnation of Osiris, the father of Horus. In that sense, every new king, Horus, was supposed to bury their predecessor, Osiris. This was a mark of respect, and a way of maintaining the cosmic order. Every generation had their time as Horus, and then ascended to the role of Osiris. Tutankhamun may have moved the burial of Akhenaten as a way of fulfilling his obligations to his royal predecessor. If he was going to be a legitimate king of Egypt, he needed to fulfill certain responsibilities. We will come back to this question when we tackle the reign of Tutankhamun. Obviously, there's a lot of complicated historical stuff going on. But long story short, the idea that the KV-55 mummy is Akhenaten, placed in a new tomb with new burial equipment, is not impossible. In fact, there is a precedent for it quite recently in Egyptian history. The KV55 monument in the Valley of the Kings might have contained the mummy of Akhenaten. If so, that mummy survives in skeletal remains and is preserved in the Cairo Museum. However, this subject is full of question marks and difficult issues. Personally, I am not yet willing to use KV55 as a fundamental part of my history. Although the tomb is fascinating, and there is clearly something really interesting going on here, there are still, I think, too many questions surrounding the mummy. The biggest issue is the age, and really, this is one of those topics that needs dedicated, impartial study by one or even more teams. Hopefully, in the future, we will get some analyses that are reliable, informative, and which lay their data out thoroughly. If that happens, maybe we will get some more conclusive answers. For now, though, I think there are too many questions lingering around KV 55 to be confident in our conclusions. Obviously, that might seem unsatisfactory, and believe me, I feel that quite keenly myself. Unfortunately, that is the name of the game in Egyptology. Sometimes, we cannot commit too strongly to a particular interpretation. The death of Akhenaten occurred in his seventeenth regnal year, and after his passing, the king was mummified and placed in his royal tomb. Originally, Akhenaten went to his rest in the sepulchre at Akhetaten, Amana. Later, it is possible that somebody removed the king's body, carried it upriver to the Valley of the Kings, and placed it in a new monument. In 2020, we cannot be certain. All we know is that the mummy might be Akhenaten, or it might not. There are good arguments either way, and hopefully future research will provide some more reliable results, or at least some data that historians can work with more confidently. If that happens, we may arrive at some more definitive conclusions, answers that historians can be confident using in their studies. For now, we simply cannot be sure. Akhenaten's mummy, like the king himself, has proved to be quite elusive. This is the definition of a historical mystery. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this supplementary episode. Next time, we finally wrap up the reign of Akhenaten. We study the king's legacy and consider how he fits into royal history, and what changes he instituted that lasted into later generations. Join me soon for episode 135, The Faces of Akhenaten.